0: As we come to to the Word of the Lord, um, Psalm 119, verse 50 says this, uh, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promises give me life. Uh, Please pray with me. Father, I pray that you would indeed this morning, as we come to your Word, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, wills to respond to your Word. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And this we pray in the strong and gracious name of Jesus. Amen. Our text this morning will be first Kings chapter seventeen. First Kings chapter 17, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open there. We're going to read the entire chapter. I know it's lengthy, but at times the Lord, many times the Lord takes larger sections of scripture uh, and puts it, to, has put it together in such a way to communicate um, one central truth. And he's done that here in this, this chapter. And so I want to take it up all together. 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Now Elijah the Tishbites of Tishbi in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gates of the city, behold, a widow was gathering sticks. He called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms, carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged, and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself on the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again and revived. And he, Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Thus far in the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Uh, three weeks ago, um, I preached from the end of Second Peter And I made the point that God's worth is a means uh, by which we grow in our knowledge of him, our intimacy with him. And uh, as I was preaching that, I I knew that something more needed to be added. I didn't have time to, to do it, but I knew I needed to add more. And so today I want to add it. And what I want to add is environment, or maybe I could say it this way. Uh, add context. Uh, you see, the context for our growth in Christ is often a place of difficulty, of great difficulty. And we need to understand that difficulty is not a means by which Christ's life flows to us, but it is the occasion for it. It is the context in which we learn to look for Christ's life, abounding In us. And we know difficulty, do we not? We know what it is to experience disappointment and failure and uncertainty and confusion. We know what it is to lose and to fall short or to be inept. We know what it is to experience the breakdown of our bodies and our minds, our relationships, our resources. We live in a world of difficulty. It is the context of our life, and it's also the context in which we learn to look at Christ's life in us. We see the context of difficulty in this passage. Uh, it begins with Elijah's words to this king, Ahab. He says, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. This, this is a word of judgment for the wickedness of the kings of Israel and the people following their lead. In fact, chapters 15 and 16 uh, describe six kings of Israel. All of them are bad. And they actually seem to get worse and worse uh, with each passing one, and and the chapters um, they, they describes how all of them do evil in sight of the Lord, and they provoke Yahweh to anger for their sin and their idolatry. And the description of these kings actually crescendos to King Ahab, that says uh, that he did evil in sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And, and one of the downfalls for King Ahab is he, he married a foreign woman named Jezebel who led him and the nation of Israel into pagan worship and secretism. Uh, significant here is the worship of Baal. Now, Baal is, is, just means Lord. It was a title that was used for the god Hadad, which was the god of storm and rain. And because Baal was in charge of the rain, he was ultimately understood as the one who held in his hand life and death. The very lives of the people depended upon the annual rains that came, right? I mean, if, if there was no rain, there were no crops, there was no food, there was famine and ultimately death. And the significance and the desperate need for rain, in fact, is why Baal worship was such a problem in the history of Israel. I mean, why not worship Yahweh and appease Baal at the same time? And that was the thought process. It was, a, it was just a matter of survival to them. And I'm not justifying their, their idolatry. I'm just pointing out that this is the practical matter of it. And Elijah comes onto the scene and he enters into Baal territory and he declares to King Ahab, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. You see the challenge, right? You think that Baal is in charge of the rain, but you're wrong. It is Yahweh. He alone is God and the proof will be in the rain. Yahweh will keep this rain from you, bring famine upon you as a judgment for breaking the covenant that I made with you at Sinai. And God warned um, in that covenant of Sinai of what, this this very thing, in chapter twenty-eight of Deuteronomy, uh, it describes all the blessings for covenant faithfulness that God would shower upon the people, and also the curses that would come for their covenant disloyalty or disobedience. And so, after promising these wonderful blessings, uh, the Lord warns that if they will not obey the voice of the Lord their God and be careful to do all that He commands. That these many curses shall come upon them, including no rain. And he describes it as in the air rather than water coming to feed them. They will only be the dust of the earth that the crops and the, the animals and and the people will all be cursed because the ground will be as hard and as dry as iron. And now this reality is coming For these three and a half years to the nation of Israel. And this curse on the land of Israel causes difficulty not only for apostate Israel, but also the believing remnant. You see, Elijah is is told that he has to make his temporary home by the small stream. And he's forced to depend upon these ravens, these unclean animals to bring him his daily bread and his meat. And and he's doing that. And then the brook dries up. And so God comes to him and tells him, I'm going to send you to a Gentile woman. And she's going to sustain you. Now, a, a widow... Uh, almost certainly in this time, was a picture of extreme poverty and desperate need. Uh, The words uh, widow and sustain in the same sentence to Elijah probably seemed like an oxymoron. I mean, the ravens may have seemed more dependable in that moment. But he goes, and this is exactly what he finds. He finds this woman literally gathering a few sticks so that she could cook her final meal and her and her son could eat it and then die. It's a desperate moment. And yet God provides. And in the midst of this daily provision for this, this woman and, and her household, um, things then turn again from bad to worse. Our son becomes ill and he dies. And we hear the desperation of the words of this woman. She says to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. It's great difficulty. It's the context of her life. And of course, her son was not given as a price for her sin. We know this. Only God's son, only Jesus is able to pay such a price. But, but we do understand something of her bewilderment and her struggle. But why? Why does God both provide and then perplex? Why does he comfort and then confound? Why does he bless and then bewilder? Why? It's a hard question. And I'm not going to stand up here and pretend to have easy answers for our difficulties and the difficult questions that we have. The question itself, it was enough this week on Thursday to make me pause and reconsider the text That I had chosen to preach. It's uncomfortable. And and I think. If we're honest. We're all a little uncomfortable with it. Maybe some of us a little. Maybe some of us a lot. But we're all uncomfortable with the difficulty. Of difficulty. And so I won't stand here. And pretend to give you simple answers. But what I will stand here. And give us. Is this. That even when we don't understand God's ways that we can trust him. But he is still worthy of our worship. Difficulty is the place where we learn to trust God's word that he is our life. And this truth is exactly what we find in 1 Kings. It's clear throughout that Yahweh is life. Not Baal, no, no other pagan god, but Yahweh and him alone. This is what makes him God. He is alive. He is the living God. And all of his competitors are but dead idols. And because he is God and God alone, he is the source of the life That we so desperately need and so desperately want. And so he can be taken at his word. We can trust his promises. Let's look at this. How does the chapter convey the message that Yahweh is life? Well, first, this prophetic word regarding the drought is significant. I already mentioned that for God to withhold the rain was, was a death sentence. Conversely, to give rain is to give life. In fact, the, the, the famous story in the next chapter, um, Kings chapter 18, it, remember the story about how Elijah challenges the 450 prophets of Baal Right? And, and, and they all come together. And after the people hear crickets from Baal and they see the mighty, powerful hand as God sends fire from heaven, what does Elijah do? He goes to King Ahab and says, Now the rain will come. He is in charge of the rain. He is the one who gives life, not Baal. He is the one who sustains life. And thus, he is the one to be trusted and the one worthy of our worship. Furthermore, Elijah's first word sets up the the reality that Yahweh is life. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, lives. And then he continues this this one. He's the living one by showing that Yahweh is at work preserving life even amidst the difficulties that threaten. He sustains this prophet by a small creek and these dirty ravens. He daily fills the cupboard of this destitute widow and her son. And finally he reaches into the realm of death and he revives this Boy, to which Elijah declares, See your son, he lives. Baal can't do this because he's no God at all. He has no life, he does not live, and so he cannot give life. But Yahweh, he lives, and thus there is nothing that can thwart or overcome God, least of all, death. This incident is a sign of God's all-encompassing power. And it's a comforting sign that signals a reality that's far greater than this one momentary event for this prophet and the widow. It serves as a prophecy of things to come, of the eternal life at the hands of Yahweh. And, And for us... The application, we know, points us straight to Jesus, the resurrected Son of God. He says of himself in Revelation chapter 1, I am the living one, and I have the keys to death and Hades. He has the keys to death and Hades because he has, as, as a teenager might say, he's owned them. He overcame them. He conquered them. Death could not contain him. And thus, the life that he gives to his people is his life, eternal life. Jesus once asked, in a sense, he asked the disciples if following him was too hard. And and Peter responded. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed them and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus is our life. He has the words of life. And so we have to, in the midst of our own difficulties, ask the hard searching and personal questions. Where do we look for life? When a drought comes, to whom do we pray for rain? What do we sacrifice for? Where do we seek comfort? What devastation is too much for us to worship God? What do we fear? What angers us? Whom do we really love? Where will we go when following Jesus gets hard? He is the Holy One of God and He alone has the words of eternal life. And because He is our life and the source of our life He can be trusted. Uh, This is the very connection that the widow makes at the end of the chapter in verse 24. After she receives her son back, she says, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. She confesses. She understands that Yahweh is not like the other pagan gods, fickle and unreliable, but that his word is true. She realizes that Yahweh not only makes promises, but that he is actually interested and able to keep them. Yahweh proves himself faithful once again to his word. She says, I know. I can trust it. And we, his people, in the midst of our difficulties, we can trust God's word. It is sufficient for every new development and difficulty. And there's a pattern of God's word and how it works in this chapter. And it goes like this. Uh, there's a direction that's given by the by Yahweh. Uh, followed by a promise tied to that direction. And, and then obedience... And finally, fulfillment of the promise. We, we see this as God directs Elijah in verses 2 and 3 to, to depart and to hide by this brook Cherith. And in verse 4, he's given the promise that he's going to have water to drink from this little river and, and these ravens are going to feed him. And so Elijah obeys. And he did does according to the word of the Lord. And then in verse 6, we're told that the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And, and then the pattern repeats itself, right? The word of the Lord comes and directs Elijah to this widow. And again, he promises that he is going to sustain him by the hand in this household of this widow. And so Elijah obeys. And the promise is fulfilled. And then the pattern comes again with the widow. The word of God comes to her through the the mouthpiece of God, the prophet Elijah. And God says, do not fear. Fascinating that the words that Elijah, Elijah begins with is one of Yahweh's favorite openers. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. Do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make me something for yourself. And consistent with the pattern, then God provides a promise that the the jar of flour shall not be spent. The jug of oil shall not be empty until, until Yahweh sends the rains upon the land. And she, like Elijah, obeys and the promise is fulfilled. And it says the jar of flour in verse 16 was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty. According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. God directs this woman. To give all that she has. And trust that Yahweh will provide all that she needs. It's the very picture of faith. Taking everything on the truthfulness of God and his word and trusting that he will indeed provide what we need. And this is the faith that we are called to, to trust him and to trust his word. We don't always see the future. We never really see the future, do we? We don't always understand the presence, but we do walk by faith, not by sight. We are sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Why? Because God is true and faithful to his promises. And so it is our responsibility, uh, each of us. Uh, to apply the trustworthiness of God uh, and his word to every area of our lives. I trust that this is the work that we are doing um, as believers in Christ. But for us this morning, what I want to do is make three very specific applications uh, that are drawn out of the text. And each of them are related to what it means to trust God and to trust his word. The first very specific application that I want to make is that we can trust that the unbelieving are never out of reach for God. That we can trust him with our loved ones. Elijah was told to go to this widow in Zarephath. Uh, Zarephath was near the towns of Tyre and Sidon. It was Gentile country, Baal territory. And we get a sense that when Elijah shows up, that she is not a worshiper uh, of Yahweh. She says, as the Lord, your God lives, not my God, but your God. But in the end, she learns the powerful hand of Yahweh. She experiences his gracious provision and ultimately declares, now I know. And surely there were other widows uh, that were serving up their last meal within the nation of Israel. But God sends his prophet to this woman. This Gentile woman, a woman outside the covenant people of God. God's grace moves outside the boundaries. And is beautifully given to this woman. And she is a picture of God's reach. She's a foretaste of the day that God would grant to Gentiles the repentance that leads to life, as Peter would say in Acts chapter 11. She's a picture of you and me. Uh, A number of years ago, My parents moved from our hometown and um, they were back visiting and my dad uh, ran into my old baseball coach. Um, And this man um, asked my dad, well, what's Ryan up to these days? Um, And my dad said, well, he's a pastor. He didn't get the title right, but close enough. Uh, And this man looked at him in all seriousness, I said, It would be a cold day before I believe that Ryan Randolph is a pastor. My dad told me that. My first thought was, Really? I was that bad? <laughs> and then my second response was that of wonder Really, Lord? A sinner? Like me? Yes, my son, I came for the least of these. We entrust those we love for, we love and pray for, to the God of life. And we have every reason to not stop praying for them, even as the final meal is being prepared. We trust God with them. The second very specific application that I want to make. Um, that His word is to be trusted specifically that God's warnings are also to be believed. You see, the widow is not just a picture of God's gracious mercy, but he's also a sober reminder of his judgment. Uh, Jesus actually referred to this widow in Luke chapter 4. Um, he returned to his childhood town of Nazareth, and and he was speaking, and, and the people were surprised that such gracious words would come from this boy that they knew as Jesus. And in response Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, And Elijah was sent to none of them, only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And in hearing this, the people, uh, the scripture says, were filled of Nazareth, were filled with with wrath. And they actually attempted to kill Jesus by throwing him off of a cliff. And, And the reason for their seemingly extreme response was that they understood the implication that Jesus was making that they, like Israel in the days of Elijah, had a great gift, God with them, God dwelling in their midst. And yet they rejected him. They refused to receive him and their despising of God's word led to God's withdrawal. It was a removal of the light of his word. In fact, in in Kings 17, it was already hinted at in verse 3. When when God commands Elijah to depart, turn eastward and hide yourself in the brook Cherith. When Elijah leaves at God's command, it is not as if your average Joe has left the building. Elijah's hiding is a removal of God's word. It is a great judgment. If God's word brings life, then his removal of it is not a good thing. In Amos chapter 8, God said, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, But of hearing the words of the Lord, they shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Why? Because God has taken it from the nation of Israel. And this, of course, might seem a little different in our context. It's not as if Bibles are in short, displ- dis- you know, short supply, right? I mean, uh, But don't miss this fact, that even though we have the words on the page, it doesn't mean that we necessarily have the eyes to see or the ears to hear, the mind to grasp them, or the faith to trust them. It is the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, that illuminates our hearts and our minds that we might receive the Word of God. In Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, three times the author says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For they are the very words of life. Don't get up from your seat this morning until you've asked the Lord to give you faith to trust Him. Third, very specific application point. Uh, One of the ways that we actively learn to trust God and his word is through prayer. Uh, When the widow laments to Elijah because of the loss of her son, Elijah turns her complaint to his prayer. He leaves his servant helpless, without words, without an answer, and only with prayer and pleading. You see, prayer is God's appointed means by which we... uh, Receive his grace amidst our difficulties. In James chapter 5, James writes, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. You see, prayer is real help we have to learn to really believe that. And I have to to admit that there are are many times when I really struggle to believe that prayer is a real, tangible help. Often the difficulties that we have are things that the Lord has given to us for us to journey through. And, And when I'm presented with others' difficulties, I actually feel bad. Because I feel as if I failed, that I haven't been able to, to keep you from being able, from having to journey through it. And I think all I can do is pray. But prayer is real help. It's as tangible of a help as any other kind of care that we provide. And in prayer and through prayer, we learn that God really is our life, that he really is our comfort, that his word is sufficient for every new development and difficulty. And and when we struggle to believe this by praying, we learn it again. Prayer is one of the ways that we learn to trust God and his And so this is what 1 Kings 17 is about. That Yahweh is life and we can trust his word in the context of great difficulty. Yahweh is life. We really can trust his word in the midst of our difficulties. I want to conclude with the words of the Apostle Paul. Um, somebody, if you, you've read about his life, you know that he was acquainted with much Much difficulty. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he makes the point that the context of not only his life, but also uh, the life of the church is one of great difficulty. But he says that this difficulty actually serves as a sign of the life that we possess in Christ. That uh, we have a final triumph and a resurrection that God gives to us. In the end, he says this, that we have this treasure in jars of clay, difficulty. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And then in verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, they're eternal. We struggle in a world of difficulty. But in this context, God is teaching you, his dear child, to trust him, to trust his word, that he is indeed at work in you, preparing you for a glory that is beyond all comparison. He's preparing you for life. He's preparing you for him. Please pray with me. Father, we are humbled and amazed by who you are and by what you've done that you might give us life in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we um, come to the end of our worship service this morning, I pray that you will continue to be faithful to your word in which uh, you will indeed be with us, that you will indeed strengthen us and equip us for the life that you have given and called us to. Father, there are many in our midst that are struggling with great difficulty. God, would you assure them that you are with them that the silence that they experience is not the silence of your gracious hand and your word, but that you draw near to them and uphold them with that mighty right hand. Father, we pray that as we go out from here, that, uh, that we would turn our eyes upon you, that we would uh, realize and, and repent of, of the, the idols that we sacrifice for and, and that we would seek to worship you and you alone, that we would indeed walk by faith and not by sight and give all that we have and trust that you will provide and have provided all that we need. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the living one, the holy one of God. Amen.